Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Even though our sermon text is in the New Testament, uh, we need to remember that the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant doesn't take place until after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means nearly everything we read in the four Gospels takes place in the final years of the Old Covenant. John the Baptist, therefore, is the last of the Old Covenant prophets. Jesus even said as much in Matthew eleven seventeen when he said that uh, all the prophets prophesied until John. And when Jesus said, until John, we should understand this to be inclusive of John. So John the Baptist was an old covenant prophet. He was prophesying in the same era or the same dispensation as all the other old covenant prophets, such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Malachi. Now, somebody might ask, if nearly everything we read in the four Gospels is describing the final years of the Old Covenant, then why are the Gospels included in the New Testament? Uh, Why aren't they located at the end of the Old Testament? Well, several good answers uh, can be given to this question, but I'll offer you just one answer. Uh, The doctrines... uh, The Gospels are about the life of Jesus, and the doctrines that Jesus teaches in the four Gospels are New Covenant doctrines. The the doctrines that Jesus teaches in the Gospels are New Covenant doctrines. So even though Jesus was born, raised, and conducted his public ministry in the final days of the Old Covenant, he was teaching and preparing people to live in the New Covenant. Consider this, Uh, Luke is not only the author of the Gospel of Luke, but he's also the author of Acts. And both of these New Testament books are addressed to the same person, a person named Theophilus. Now one might ask, why did Luke write two books to the the same person? Um, Why didn't he just write one book? And this is a good question because if you read the beginning of Acts, you'll notice that it picks up right where the Gospel of Luke left off. In other words, the narrative is uninterrupted from one book to the other. So why not join them into a single book? Well, Luke may have, other, have, other, uh, Luke may have had other reasons for splitting them into two books, but I think he understood that when he was writing his gospel, he was writing about the final years of the Old Covenant. And when he was writing Acts, he was writing about the beginning of the New Covenant. So I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke ended his gospel with Jesus' resurrection appearances and began Acts with Jesus' ascension to his throne in heaven. We'll explore the transition between the Old and New Covenants in greater detail when we begin looking at the public ministry and teachings of Jesus. But I want to call your attention to this point now because we're going to see in all the, throughout the Gospels and even in our sermon text here, we're going to see people observing Old Covenant laws and rituals as we make our way through the Gospels. Um, This is including the birth narratives of both John and Jesus. For example, in our sermon text this morning, we see the Old Covenant sacrament of circumcision being administered to John. 
And sometimes this confuses Christians because they're reading the New Testament and they're reading that John was circumcised as an infant, they assume that circumcision must still have application to New Covenant Christianity. But then there are those statements in Acts and the epistles that say circumcision has no value under the New Covenant. And so this causes confusion. Which is it? Understand, brothers and sisters, that the reason John is being circumcised is because he was born under, under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, God required baby boys to be circumcised on the eighth day. And this was one of the sacraments of the Old Covenant. In Genesis 17, 11, God tells Abraham that circumcision is a sign of the covenant, a sign of the covenant that he was making with Abraham and his descendants. And then the Lord goes on in Genesis 17 to say that every baby boy that's born into the community of people that God has given his covenant promises to is required to receive the sign of of the covenant. Every baby boy that was born into the covenant people of God, the people that God had given his covenant promises to, was required to receive the sign of that covenant. And so this is why John is being circumcised in our sermon text. His parents were being faithful to the commandment of God. And while his parents were being faithful to the commandment of God, something unusual happened. At least it's unusual to our modern American ears. Luke tells us that the neighbors and relatives who were rejoicing with Elizabeth over the birth of her son uh, thought that they knew what the baby's name should be and started to impose that name upon it. There there was a contention about what the baby's name should be. Look at verses uh, 59 and 60. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. Now this is unusual to our American ears because in our culture, uh, neighbors and relatives have no input on what a child's name should be. In our culture, it's only the father and mother who have the authority to name their child and everybody else is supposed to accept whatever name they choose. This is why Elon Musk can name his children bizarre and unpronounceable names and everybody accepts it. People might laugh at the names he chooses for his kids, but everybody acknowledges that it's his parental prerogative to name his children whatever he wants. Nobody says, Elon, you need to name your son Elon. But that's exactly what's happening in our sermon text. The neighbors and relatives are telling Zacharias and Elizabeth that they need to name their son Zacharias. To understand what's happening here, we need to know something about the culture of first central Israel. Um, For this, I'm grateful for the ministry of a man named Alfred Edersheim. Alfred Edersheim was born in 1825 to a wealthy Jewish uh, family, wealthy Jewish parents who were living in Vienna. Uh, He was raised in Judaism. He was given a traditional education in the Talmud and the Torah at a traditional Hebrew school. Then at the age of 16, he entered the University of Vienna. 
but shortly after he began his university studies, Alfred's father became ill and lost all of his fortunes. And Alfred had no other option than to drop out of school and find gainful employment to support himself. So at about 17 or 18 years of age, he immigrated to Hungary where he took a job teaching languages. And that's where he met a man named John Duncan. John Duncan was a Presbyterian minister of the Free Church of Scotland. And his special calling, John Duncan's special calling was to serve as a missionary to the Jews in Hungary. Well, Edersheim was converted under Duncan's ministry. Duncan shared the true gospel of Jesus Christ with Edersheim and the Lord granted uh, regeneration uh, for Edersheim's heart. In 1849, uh, at the age of 24, Edersheim was ordained in the Free Church of Scotland and he pastored a couple different churches until he passed away at the age of 64. But Edersheim didn't only serve as a pastor of these local churches, he also wrote many books. And having such an extensive background in the history and doctrines of Judaism, and then coming under the influence of the true gospel and and the doctrines of grace, Edersheim was uniquely qualified to write about the Jewish roots of Christianity, specifically, and most importantly, during the first century uh, Judaism. Uh, Edersheim Edersheim, uh, wrote a book entitled The Temple and Its Ministry and the Services at the Time of Jesus Christ. He wrote sketches of Jewish social life in the days of Christ. He wrote The Golden Diary of Heart Converse with Jesus in the Psalms. He wrote a seven-volume Bible history. He wrote The World Before the Flood and the History of the Patriarchs. But perhaps his most widely circulated writing is his two-volume work entitled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. In The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Edersheim describes what a traditional uh, Jewish circumcision ceremony was like in the first century. The ceremony was attended by many friends and family members. It began with somebody speaking a blessing upon the child, a benediction. Then the circumcision was performed by a mohel, which is a person who is skilled in performing the operation according to Jewish customs and laws. And then everybody would drink a glass of wine. And then a guest of honor would offer a prayer. And it was in the context of this prayer that the child's name would first be declared to the public. Now what's important to note is that the father of the child being circumcised was not the person who prayed the prayer, nor was it the mother. It would have been a man, of course, but it was not the father, which means it was not the father of the child being circumcised who would announce the name of the child. Whoever offered the prayer, which was always a guest of honor, whether that would be a rabbi or an uncle or somebody else, whoever offered the prayer was the person who had the privilege of making the announcement of what the child's name is gonna be. Edersheim tells us what the traditional prayer was that was prayed at the end of the ceremony. It wasn't just a spontaneous prayer. It wasn't a different prayer at every time. No, it was the same prayer. It was a recited prayer that every circumcision ceremony uh, concluded with. 
And so the prayer, the prayer goes like this. Our God and the God of our fathers, raise up this child to his father and mother and let his name be called in Israel, blank, the son of blank. Let his father rejoice in the issue of his loins and his mother in the fruit of her womb. And then the prayer would go on to cite some relevant passages of scripture, namely Proverbs 23:25, Ezekiel 16:6, 6, Psalm 105:8, and Genesis 21:4. That was the prayer. And so when we read in our sermon text that the neighbors and relatives expected John the Baptist to be, be named Zacharias, they were following the Jewish tradition of naming the baby boy after his father or grandfather. And knowing that Alfred Edersheim, what Alfred Edersheim has taught us about the traditional Jewish circumcision ceremony, we could have a pretty good idea of how this whole thing transpired in our sermon text. Verse 58 tells us that all the, you know, the neighbors and relatives showed up to rejoice with Elizabeth at the birth of her son. And that was a fulfillment of the prophecy that Gabriel had spoken to Zacharias back in Luke 1 verse 14. Uh, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias in the temple and he told him that many people will rejoice in the birth of this son. As he was telling Zacharias, you're gonna have a son. So in our sermon text, many people are rejoicing in the child's birth. Then the circumcision was performed by a mohel. Then everybody drank a glass of wine. Then a guest of honor prayed the closing prayer. Our God and the God of our fathers raise up this child to his father and mother and let his name in Israel, let his name be called in Israel, Zacharias, the son of Zacharias. And at this point, Elizabeth interrupted to prayer. No, his name shall be called John, she says in verse 60. And the neighbors and relatives objected to Elizabeth. There's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. In other words, our traditions don't allow you to name him John. You have to name him after a relative. And because this is probably the only son you're ever gonna have the opportunity to name, you should name him after his father. You should name him Zacharias. But Elizabeth persisted that his name shall be John. So they appealed to the father, Zacharias. Now remember, Zacharias had not spoken for at least nine months. He was struck mute when he expressed his disbelief at the news Gabriel uh, told him while they were in the temple. And it appears from verse 62 that Zacharias may have even been experiencing some hearing issues as well, because it says that all the neighbors and relatives made signs or gestures to Zacharias, asking him what the name of the child should be. And so Zacharias took a tablet and he wrote on that tablet, his name is John. Note that Zacharias did not write something like, we were thinking it would be good to name him John. Or we like the name of John. We kind of like that name. Rather, Zacharias definitively wrote, his name is John. In the Greek manuscripts, the name John appears first in the, the, as the first word in the sentence, which makes it even more explicit. John is his name, is how it reads in the Greek. It's uncertain whether the 
closing prayer of the ceremony was ever completed. If it was, whoever was praying would have started the prayer over from the beginning. Our God and the God of our fathers, raise up this child to his father and mother and let his name be called in Israel, John, the son of Zacharias. Why was it important for this baby boy to be named John? Because God had given him that name. The name means God is gracious. God wanted the forerunner to the Messiah to be named God is gracious. When the forerunner to the Messiah was baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, the Lord wanted that gospel preacher to be named God is gracious. So our sermon text is not describing a situation where the parents had the prerogative to name their child whatever they wanted. Way back in verse 13, God told Zacharias through the angel Gabriel that when, his, when this child is born, he shall be named John. Naming him John, therefore, was a matter of obedience. And we read in our sermon text that when Zacharias demonstrated obedience to this command, the chastisement that had come upon him on account of his earlier disbelief was immediately removed. The chastisement was immediately removed. As soon as Zacharias gave evidence that he had learned the lesson that God's word is always true and will always come to pass, the Lord's discipline came to an end. Now we should interpret the Lord's treatment of Zacharias's unbelief or disbelief uh, as a demonstration of grace. Uh, God didn't deal with Zacharias according to his sin. God was, in other, in other words, making Zacharias mute for nine months or, or more was not a punishment. God was not venting his anger upon Zacharias. Rather, the chastisement was a means of correction. God was treating Zacharias as a son. He was training him to partake of holiness. He put Zacharias through a disciplinary trial in order to produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness in Zacharias' life. And it worked. Brothers and sisters, count yourselves blessed when the Lord chastises you. Count yourself blessed when the Lord chastises you. This was Solomon's counsel to his son in Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Take note of the point that Solomon is making here. He says that the Lord chastens and corrects those he loves, just as an earthly father chastens and corrects a son in whom he delights. As people who have been commanded by God to test and examine ourselves as to whether we are in the faith, we have several uh, so-called evidences of, of salvation that we can look for when we perform this test. I addressed one such evidence during the reading of God's law this morning. John 3, verses 18 through 21 tells us that the natural disposition of man is to love darkness and to hate light. This is because our deeds are evil and the unregenerate man does not want those deeds to be exposed to the light. But a genuine Christian doesn't hide his deeds in darkness. 
Why not? Because he knows that bringing them into the light is the only opportunity he has for receiving forgiveness of his sins. And so one of the evidences of your salvation is your willingness to repent of your sins. Another evidence you can look for is is whether you have knowledge and understanding of the spiritual things of God. Whether you have knowledge and understanding of the spiritual things of God. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the unregenerate man cannot know the deep things of God because they must be revealed by the Holy Spirit. And because the Spirit does not indwell those who are not saved, they cannot know these things. They're confused, they're confounded by the scriptures. They conclude that the spiritual things of God are unknowable and foolishness. But for those who do have the spirit within them, they understand the spiritual things of God because the spirit makes them known. And so properly discerned, this is an evidence of salvation. Another evidence uh, you should be looking for is for what the scriptures call the fruit of the spirit. Is there a demonstration or discernible uh, evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Does your life demonstrate an appropriate love for God and neighbor? Are you able to experience genuine joy in all circumstances? Do you experience the peace of God within your soul? And do you live at peace with other people? Are you patient and long-suffering with other people? Do you treat them with kindness? Do goodness and generosity flow from your character? Are you faithful and trustworthy? Do you have a gentle and teachable spirit? And do you have self-control over your passions and desires? These are the types of evidences that, that all Christians should regularly be looking for in their lives. You and I should be regularly looking for these evidences in our life, constantly evaluating, constantly assessing, looking for growth and maturation in these, in these, these fruits of the Spirit. And this is because uh, these are some of the most discernible indications that the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart and is maturing you in faith and holiness. But in light of what the Lord was doing in Zacharias's life, and in consideration of what Solomon wrote about how the Lord chastens those he loves, let me pose one more evidence that you can use for testing whether you're in the faith. Does the Lord chasten you? Does he correct you as a father corrects the son in whom he delights? It would be a scary situation if you persisted in unrepented sins for a long period of time and the Lord never chastened you for it. Why is that a scary situation? Because the Lord only chastens those he loves. He doesn't let his beloved persist in unrepented sin. If we try, he brings correction into our lives. His correction is always painful according to Hebrews 12, 11, but its presence is an indication that the Lord loves you and is treating you as his precious child. He doesn't do that for the reprobate. They're not his children, nor are they the objects of his love. So he does not chasten them. Rather, he gives them over to their sin. He lets them continue sinning, storing up wrath for the day of wrath. But whom the Lord loves, he chastened. 
The Lord chastened Zacharias. And in our sermon text, Zacharias is demonstrating the peaceable fruit of righteousness that was produced by the Lord's chastening. Now that this fruit is evident in in Zacharias' life, the Lord brought an end to his chastening. He restored Zacharias' ability to speak. Brothers and sisters, if you ever find yourself in the midst of the Lord's fatherly correction, rejoice that he, you know, first of all, rejoice that he's treating you as a child in whom he delights. Second, identify the sin that God is chastening, chastening you for. And third, submit yourself to the Lord's correction by putting off your sin and putting on the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, don't despise and detest the Lord's chastening. This is a necessary warning because some Christians, and perhaps even a lot of Christians, despise and detest the Lord's chastening. Some Christians persist and their unwillingness to make the the corrections that God is intending for them to make. So they resist the Lord's correction. They kick against the goads to use biblical terminology, like an ox kicking against that sharp spike uh, at at the end of the ox goad. It only injures oneself. The ox only injures himself, and we as Christians who kick against the goads, we only injure ourselves. It only makes the situation worse. And it only increases the duration and intensity of the Lord's chastisement. Zacharias is an exemplary model of a man who righteously submitted to the Lord's correction. He didn't resist the work of the Lord. He didn't resist the correction that God was accomplishing in his life. He didn't protest against God. He didn't doubt that the Lord loved him. Rather, he submitted himself as an obedient child submits himself to his father's correction. And notice what Zacharias did when his speech was restored. Verse 64 says that the first words out of his mouth were praises to God. Praises to God. We can read in uh, verses 68 through 79 what those words of praise actually were. That whole section is what Zacharias spoke when he regained his ability, ability to speak. And once again, I want to focus your attention on Zacharias as an exemplary model of a believer who had been trained by the loving chastisement of the Lord. This is a man who, very much like ourselves, had fallen into sin. And yet when the Lord brought his correction into Zacharias' life, Zacharias submitted to it, and he's an exemplary model that we might emulate in this regard. Notice three things about Zacharias and his response to God's correction. First, notice that Zacharias was quick to resume the ministry work that he had been doing prior to the Lord's correction coming upon him. As soon as his speech was restored, he went back to his ministry work. If you remember what happened back at the beginning of Luke 1, when Zacharias first lost his speech, he was lighting the incense inside the temple. And the, 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 the worship liturgy was for him to light the incense inside the temple while all the worshipers outside the temple prayed. And then Zacharias would, was supposed to come out of the temple and pronounce a blessing upon the worshipers. Well, he came out of the temple, but he couldn't pronounce the blessing because he was mute. 
Now, nine or more months later, his speech is restored, and the first thing he does is pronounce a blessing. He picks up exactly where he left off. He didn't, he, but in this case, he doesn't bless the people in attendance. He blesses the Lord. Look at verse 68. Zechariah said, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Second, notice the things that Zacharias is praising God for. Many people in Zacharias' situation would be praising God for bringing the chastisement to an end. And while there's nothing wrong with praising God for that, Zacharias doesn't want to focus on himself at this time. He doesn't want to make this about him and what, what, how he's benefiting. Rather, he's focusing on the work of God through the person uh, and work of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 68, along with verse 69. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And this is referring to Jesus. The Lord God of Israel redeemed his people through Jesus. Jesus is the horn of salvation spoken of here. Jesus is the redeemer from the house of David. Now you might have expected Zacharias to be praising God for the birth of John the Baptist, for the birth of his own son. After all, John had a very significant role in the whole manifestation of of the Messiah. He is the forerunner to the Messiah. And so it would only seem appropriate that there would be praise given for John's birth. But that's not what Zacharias does. He praises the Lord for Jesus Christ. After all, the, 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 the occasion here in which all this takes place is a celebration of John's birth, but making it all the more significant that when Zacharias offers up his praise to the Lord, the, the first words that he gives attention to is the greatest gift that the Lord has ever given to this earth, and that being Jesus Christ our Lord. When you and I experience uh, the Lord's loving fatherly correct, uh, correction or chastisement, we should do as Zacharias did. We should not set our attention first and foremost on the work uh, uh, on ourselves, but on we should do set our attention on the work that God is doing through Jesus Christ. And this is a this is this needs to be a conscientious decision. Uh, this, is, this doesn't come natural to us. This needs to be a conscientious decision that we make by faith because most of us naturally want to focus on ourselves. And while the Lord's chastisement is upon us, we're often focused on ourselves in unhealthy ways. Uh, this can take the form of self-pity. This can take the form of feeling mistreated. This can take the form of anger or depression or despair But when we conscientiously maintain our focus on the work of God through Jesus Christ, we're not only going to avoid the pitfalls of despising the Lord's correction, but we're going to maintain a healthy healthy perspective throughout the chastening process. And when that process is complete, our greatest joy for which we will praise the Lord is not going to be that his correction has run its course and come to an end. But rather, our greatest praise, our greatest joy is gonna be to praise him 
for the gift that he has so graciously given to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is how we maintain, uh, that, that is uh, uh, how we will maintain an appropriate attitude and perception of the, the loving correction from the Lord. And the third thing I wanna, want you to notice about Zacharias's response of praise is how he's able to see the Lord's work as a present reality in his life, as a present reality in his life. Sometimes Christians see the work of God more as an abstraction. We affirm it, we believe it conceptually, but it's not a present reality that has direct and immediate application in our lives. It's just something that's kind of out there. In other words, it's not something that is meaningful. It's meaningful in theory, but not meaningful in practice. But that wasn't the case with Zacharias. And once again, Alfred Edersheim has contributed some helpful information for understanding this portion of our sermon text. When you read the words that Zacharias prophesied in verses 68 through 79, you might notice, you, you, you might recognize them as bits and pieces of a variety of Old Testament passages that have been stitched together to form a, a glorious hymn of praise. And in a roundabout way, this is true. This is, this is exactly what it is. But what Edersheim tells us is that the priests in those days had a book called the 18 Benedictions. And as the name suggests, this book, uh, uh, this book was, con, um, it, it contained 18 written benedictions or 18 blessings that the priests would use in the context of worship. Uh, these benedictions were bits and pieces of a variety of Old Testament passages stitched together to form uh, a blessing. And these blessings, these 18 blessings, were used and recited during worship services. Zacharias, being a priest, would have not only been familiar with these 18 benedictions, he probably would have had them all memorized as they were things that would have been recited over and over. And he was an old man. He had been doing this for years and years. Edersheim tells us that the contents of Zacharias's prophecy recorded in our sermon text is very similar to the 15th benediction and the 18 benedictions book. But there's one substantial difference. Uh, Zacharias changed the tense of the verbs in the benediction to transform it from a hymn of hopeful expectation uh, hopeful expectation of the Messiah to a hymn that rejoices in the present realization of the Messiah. Let me say that again. Zacharias changed the tenses of the verb to, uh, to, to, cha- to transform the hymn from a hopeful, hopeful expectation of the Messiah to a hymn that rejoices in the present realization of the Messiah. In other words, the benediction was originally composed in anticipation of the Messiah, and Zacharias transformed it to be a hymn uh, stating that the Messiah has already come. Now, mind you, Jesus had not been born yet. Mary was only about three months into her pregnancy when Zacharias is making this prophecy but that didn't bother Zacharias. He spoke in the full confidence that God would bring to completion the good work that he had already begun and was evident in Mary. Now, this takes faith, brothers and sisters. This takes, in some cases, an enormous 
amount of faith. To stand upon the promises of God as a present reality when in fact they're only partially fulfilled requires faith. Zacharias had that faith, which is why he serves as an exemplary model for how Christians should respond to the Lord's fatherly correction. We too should have faith that is so confident in the Lord's promises that we're able to rejoice in their fulfillment even before they're completely fulfilled. Which promises of God might we be setting our attention on when we're experiencing the Lord's chastisement? Well, there's a multitude of them. Uh, Open the book of Psalms. There's a multitude of promises there that would be appropriate in such circumstances. But let me, let me just give you two. I submit to you that any time we're going through difficult trials, even whether that's the chastening of the Lord or some other trial, Romans 8.28 is an excellent promise to behold by faith. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I think you can see, I think you can intuitively know how comforting and encouraging it would be to know by faith that this promise is as good as fulfilled in your life because it's the promise of God. We don't need to doubt whether this is true. We don't need to doubt whether this is uh, actually gonna happen for us or if it's just for other Christians. No, it's given to you. It's a promise that's given to you and it's an absolute promise. We need to receive that by faith. And even if you don't see the complete fulfillment of that promise today, you can rejoice in the fulfillment because it's a promise that comes from God. Another promise you can focus on during the Lord's chastening is the one contained in Joshua 1 verse 5, where the Lord declares that he will never leave you nor forsake you. To believe by faith that this promise is fulfilled by God in your life is a comfort, and especially a comfort when you're experiencing loneliness, or depression, especially when you're feeling like everything in your life is out of balance, when all your hopes and dreams have been derailed, when you remember that the Lord is with you at all times and that his promises in Jesus Christ are yes and in him, amen, then you'll experience the glory of God even in difficult times. You'll, you'll like, like Habakkuk, say, my hope is complete and is fulfilled in this one thing, that I belong to my Lord. Uh, the, everything else pales in comparison. And so when we're going through difficult trials, when we're experiencing the heavy hand of God chastening, correcting us for our sins, we should remember this promise from Joshua 1 verse five, that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. He is yours and he is yours eternally. Like Zacharias, your faith will permit you to bless the Lord for a total fulfillment of the promise that you're presently only able to see a partial fulfillment of. Amen, and let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted. Copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California.
Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.